0: Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. This podcast is brought to you in association with Globalizing the Rising, 1916 in Context, a major conference which will take place in University College Dublin on the 5th and 6th of February 2016. For more information, go to centenaries.ucd.ie. In this episode, a paper recorded at the Universities in Revolution and State Formation Conference, which took place in UCD Newman House, on the 5th and 6th of June 2015. This project was funded by an Irish Research Council New Foundations Award and by a University College Dublin Decade of Centenaries Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. This episode features a recording from Panel 2 Academics in State Formation. The paper, Owen McNeil Revolutionary Cultural Ideologue, was given by Dr. Ray Carew from University College Dublin.
1: Patrick uh, Pierce commented that when the Gaelic League was founded in 1893, uh, the Irish Revolution began. The historian and Celticist, Owen MacNeill, who became Professor of Early, including medieval Irish history at UCD in 1909, was described as the architect, organiser and philosopher of the Gaelic League, which he co-founded with Douglas Hyde and Father Eugene O'Browning. This revolutionary idea, as Sean O'Toolema referred to it, was central to the cultural ideology of the first two nationalist governments in Ireland. The institutionalisation of culture through the use of cultural policy documents and legislation and the establishment of commissions and institutes was important to identity formation and the consolidation of the state's separate status was from Britain. The State Cultural Revitalisation Programme, which reached its apogee in the nineteen thirties, was nativist in character, international in its scope and reflected the anthropological modernist vision of Owen McNeil, whose ideas were influential in the twenties and nineteen thirties. The institutionalizing of nativist cultural production was both an expression and validation of state power. While the construction of the cultural republic on independence may not have been the one that some dreamed of, it was a success on its own terms, and was bolstered by the sound work of academics such as Owen MacNeill, and also his work as a public intellectual and a cultural ambassador for Ireland abroad, particularly in the United States. MacNeill's contribution in terms of cultural nation-building has not, to date, been fully appreciated. This is perhaps because cultural historians are overly dependent on the work of writers such as Sean O'Fallon for their interpretations. Writers and literary theorists tend to view the cultural history of the 20s and the 1930s through the lens of the censorship laws. However, Paul Delaney, in his recent book on O'Fallon, remarked that the writer revised historical narratives to fit the needs of present-day agendas and concerns. Roy Foster suggests that Ophelan's work stands as the record of an alternative perspective on De Valera's Ireland. While this is true, uh, it also means that the perspective on the cultural history of this particular period was narrow, with Ophelan eschewing nativist achievements in favour of what he considered to be an internationalist agenda in an English-speaking world. The ideas contained in Douglas Hyde's speech, um, the necessity for the de-anglicising Ireland, were essential to the cultural underpinnings of the nationalist state. David Green, in his paper on the founding of the Gaelic League, makes the point that Hyde, in disavowing any political aims, had caused people to overlook the radical and revolutionary nature of his policy of de-Anglicisation. Indeed, Hyde himself had postulated that it was our Gaelic past which prevented the Irish from becoming citizens of the Empire. Uh, Owen MacNeill expressed the view in the Irish Statesman on 17th October 1925 that if Irish nationality were not to mean a distinctive Irish civilisation, I would attach no very great value to Irish national independence. He played an important role in rediscovering that distinctive Irish civilisation through research, uh, publications and dissemination of information to the public. This process validated culturally the independent nation. MacNeill's work challenged that of historians Edmund Curtis and Goddard Henry Orpin. Orpin's great work, Ireland under the Normans, expressed the cultural superiority of the Anglo Normans as a race. MacNeill drew attention to Irish history, which had been ignored or misrepresented by colonialist writers. He was influenced as a historian of medieval Ireland by the work of Sir John Rhys and the French Celticist Darbois de Juvenville. Other revivalists, such as uh, J.M. Singh, author of The Aran Islands, had also been influenced by the work of de Juvenville. Um, Singh attended lectures on Celtic culture and mythology, philology, and cultural anthropology at the Sorbonne in Paris. According to Gregory Castle, this was an effort by revivalists to reclaim traditions, histories and cultures from imperialism and to reclaim, rename and re-inhabit the land. In his published lecture, Where Does Irish History Begin?, McNeil commented that the current account of pre-Christian Ireland, and I quote, has belittled and overclouded the vast majority of the Irish people for the glorification of a dominant minority. And that one outcome of these studies has been to restore the majority to the historical place of honour from which they have been ousted for a thousand years. According to early Irish historian Francis John Byrne, Owen MacNeill was in every field an expert and very often a pioneer. Certainly it was the case that MacNeill never remained exclusively a historian. His academic and cultural interests were as varied as they were erudite, spanning early Irish history, Irish language studies, patrician studies, Oam inscriptions and early Irish law. Brian O'Creeve noted that Owen MacNeill never lost sight of his primary aim, which was to see Irish firmly established in all branches of education and in all walks of life as a living language. MacNeill wrote an article in March 1893 entitled A Plea and a Plan for the Extension of the Movement to Preserve and Spread the Gaelic Language in Ireland, which was published in the Gaelic Journal. He served as editor of the Gaelic Journal from September 1894 to March 1897. He also became editor of, on Clive Sulish, the Gaelic League's weekly paper. MacNeill was described as a philologist of the first rank, and his work in the field of Irish Ogham inscriptions was praised by the Swiss-born Celtic philologist Rudolf Thurneisen. In her paper, uh, Linguistic Science and Nationalist Revolution, Brigidine M. French noted that Owen MacNeill's efforts to link the Irish language with an independent Irish people played an undeniably productive role in the process of achieving political sovereignty. Expert scholarship and national identity formation were intimately entwined. French noted that MacNeill used linguistic scholarship to engender nationalist sentiment around Irish. The Irish language gave credence to his view that the nation was not simply a construction of the 19th century Romantic but had roots deep in antiquity. Hutchinson explains that MacNeill marshaled the Celtic scholars of Europe to reinstate Ireland as one of the original cultures of Europe. He developed this idea of European belonging in his book Phases of Irish History, published in 1919, in which he argued that the Irish Celts were one of the first European peoples to create a national literature. Hyde had also stressed the Europeanness of the Irish language and people. This embedded the political idea that Ireland belonged to the European family of independent nation-states and not to the British Empire. In his editorials in Ancly of Solis, MacNeil discussed cultural and language revivals in other countries, including Finland, Bohemia, Hungary and East Prussia, where he equated material prosperity with revival. The state took over the League's educational function by including Irish as a compulsory subject in the educational system and also by setting up the special government publications office on Goom in 1926. The Gaelic League had campaigned for and succeeded in making Irish a compulsory subject for matriculation to the newly established National University of Ireland in 1908. The Irish language was established as the national language in the 1922 Constitution and was also given this status in the 1937 Constitution. MacNeill himself served as Minister for Education between 1922 and 1925. Um, Owen MacNeill was a co founder and first chairman of the Irish Manuscripts Commission in 1928. After the destruction of the Public Records Office at the forecourts on the 30th of June 1922 during the Civil War, uh, describing the Irish Times as a national calamity, the impetus to establish an organisation whose primary task was the publication of original historical source materials became very important the Irish Manuscripts Commission was a key organisation in the construction of national identity for the new found Irish free state it made the source materials of Irish history widely available to scholars and was the first step in building history as a viable academic discipline in modern ireland The publication of Irish language manuscripts, as well as documents in the English language, provided the research infrastructure for the writing of Irish history. According to Robert Dudley Edwards, it was due to MacNeill that Irish historical studies developed so impressively uh, from the 1920s. MacNeill became president of the Irish Historical Society in 1936. Edwards and Theo Moody saw their new journal, Irish Historical Studies, founded in 1938, as building on the work of the Irish Manuscripts Commission. Edwards credited MacNeill for his achievements in establishing the scientific basis for the study of early Irish history, its laws and institutions. Uh, And this is a picture of Owen MacNeill receiving an honorary doctorate from the Catholic University of uh, America in Washington, D.C., in 1930. In the preface to his book entitled Celtic Ireland, published in 1921, MacNeill wrote that the Irish nation's story should be given the place it deserves in world's history. In an effort to promote Celtic studies in American universities, he embarked on a tour there in 1930, It was following the successful tour that the Harvard Mission began its work in Ireland in 1932. This eugenic project was an effort by American anthropologists and archaeologists to study the Celtic race, to assess their fitness for immigration to the United States, and was also an acknowledgement of the importance of Celtic culture to the Irish in America, who partly funded the research. Large scale scientific excavations and the physical examination of thousands of Irish people became part of the nation building project. It was now deemed scientifically possible to recover proof of the Irish race's antiquity and therefore political validity through the practice and methods of archaeology. Archaeology was rooted in the landscape and therefore the territory defined as the homeland. During the 19th and early 20th century, emerging European nation-states, including Ireland, took pride in their own distinctive cultural origins within the context of a European framework. The desire to protect the manifestations of those origins, uh, the material remains, gradually came to the fore and culminated in stricter protective legislative measures. In Ireland, it gained momentum with the founding of the Irish Free State and culminated in the framing of the National Monuments Act in February 1930. The importance of the Lithberg Report, produced under the chairmanship of Professor Niels Lithberg of the Nordic Museum in Stockholm, lay in the fact that not only was it the first cultural policy document drafted for the National Museum of Ireland in the Irish Free State, but it was also the key document in the nationalisation policy of the government for Irish archaeology. It prioritised for display the early Christian objects and the gold objects of the Bronze Age, described as Celtic gold at that time. The report also emphasised the importance of Irish folk life, In 1935, the Irish Folklore Commission succeeded in assembling one of the finest and most extensive collections of folk tradition in the world. Seamus O'Dillerga, who was involved in the setting up of the Irish Folklore Commission, travelled extensively in Scandinavia and established strong academic and cultural ties there. In 1936, at the inaugural meeting of the Historical Society at UCD, O'Dillirga noted that scholars on the continent and in America were taking particular interest in its work. Um, And this is um, uh, an article from Life magazine in 1939, and it's about Ernest A. Houghton uh, that you see um, on the right in the picture, and he was the person who organized uh, the Harvard mission. He was a eugenicist um, and uh, he was a physical anthropologist. But it's, the caption is, no long upper lipped baboon faced Irishmen common in political cartoons were found. There was no reference to uh, long upper lipped baboon faced Irish women. I just thought I'd get that in. Um, now, the Harvard mission was an expression of diasporic cultural nationalism. Which was an attempt to improve the social and economic circumstances of the Irish in America through Celtic cultural endeavour. MacNeill expressed the view that a right appreciation of Ireland's place in history, disseminated in America, must contribute to the cultural and spiritual upbuilding of America. Attempts were also made in the 1930s to establish an American school of Celtic studies at the National Museum of Ireland. While this did not materialise, de Valera included a school of Celtic studies alongside a school of theoretical physics in his modernist Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies in 1940. The idea for this was initially mooted by Owen MacNeill, and was modelled on the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton. In 1940, MacNeill was elected president of the Royal Irish Academy, from which he had been expelled in 1916. Um, So MacNeill, as a northern Catholic, had a scholarly interest in St. Patrick. And this is St. Patrick, in in case anyone doesn't recognize this St. Patrick. um, It was sculpted for the Hill of Tara um, because the the St. Patrick on the Hill of Tara was broken. But the locals didn't want this St. Patrick because he was uh, bald, And he had a bit of a mini dress and they thought he was carrying a handbag, but it was actually St. Patrick's Bell. (laughs) If you look closely, you see that that's St. Patrick's Bell. So one of the important aspects of his work on this topic between the years 1923 and 1934 was his analysis of the topography of the tripartite life of St. Patrick. In the Irish Free State, Catholicism became part of the continuum of nativist cultural expression. People from all over the world attended the Eucharistic Congress, which took place in 1932. Described as a flashpoint in the formation of a specific Irish Catholic identity, it coincided with what was believed to be the 1500th anniversary of St. Patrick's Mission to Ireland – The historical significance of the Congress was that it became, according to Holmes, a culminating event in the Irish national struggle, in which images of the past played an important role. The Irish Free State has been wrongly described as culturally barren and stagnant in the first two decades of independence. The programme of nativist cultural revitalisation which took place was a modernist one in an internationalist context. Early Irish history, archaeology, Irish language, folklore and native traditions became important in themselves rather than simply as motifs mediated through Irish literature in the English language. In fact, a programme of cultural revitalisation consolidated the identity of the state and established its unique position in world culture. This had cultural and economic implications for the future of Ireland. This impetus for regeneration was part of a wider European project where nation-states across Europe defied their nationhood in terms of race, culture, language and purity. These modernist regeneration projects involved the enactment of laws which institutionalized concepts of national culture. In Ireland, the success of the Cultural Republic following independence and overseen by two nationalist governments was due to the nativist blueprint for de-anglicising Ireland imagined by Douglas Hyde and acted upon by Owen MacNeill. The symbiotic relationship between nativist culture and nationalist politics reflected a theme running through MacNeill's life and scholarly work. Perhaps in the run-up to the commemorations of the Rising, it is timely to remember the non-military contributions of academics, writers and artists to state formation. In this context, Owen McNeil's cultural contribution to this state was a singular and outstanding one. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this History Hub podcast. You can find many more podcasts at historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts.